Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we discuss, educate and talk about industry news and hot topics, company reviews and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International. With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the Mining Podcast. And today I have Sarah Gordon, Managing Director of Satala, um, who are a global network of trainers, consultants, researchers, who believe that risk management should be practical and enable real decisions to be made and acted on. Mining is their core business. So um, Sarah often speaks at events and I was actually recommended um, Sarah, I was actually recommended Sarah to me by uh, a talk that she did earlier this year. And I actually got to listen to one of her talks at the recent Minds and Money event in London. So I'm excited that she agreed to come onto this podcast. So with no further ado, I want to get straight into this and Sarah can explain uh, more about the company and I've got some questions that I would like to ask her. So I'd like to wear, welcome Sarah Gordon. Hi, how are you doing, Sarah? Um, I'm great. Thanks very much, Rob, for having me on. No, I appreciate that. Um, obviously, I saw you speak the other day, but what I want to do is if you can give us a little bit of background about yourself. So looking at when you're obviously junior studies and then when you moved into the industry and a little bit about your career before we go on and talk about Satala. So far away. So, yeah. So when you first first graduated and then stepped into the into the workforce. Brilliant. Yeah, no, I'm sure thing, Rob. So um, I'm originally a geologist, so I studied for my undergraduate degree at the University of Glasgow. And I I then went to Anglo-American on their internship scheme. Um, And I was really lucky uh, because I got to go and fly around in helicopters looking for nickel in northern Canada. Well, sorry, in northern Quebec, to be exact. Um, And during my time there, um, I had a I had a PhD that was lined up in London Um, but Anglo were really kind they offered me a job and 10 minutes before I had to say yes or no to this job a fireball flew over the top of our camp so a meteor coming to land on the earth and it was so close that you can feel and hear the supersonic boom now my PhD that I was due to do was in meteorites right okay at that point in time I stepped out of the mining sector having only just got into it went and did my PhD at Imperial College and then I came back into mining again, so back yep. into Anglo-American. On the exploration side, yep. I then went on site in Brazil, where I did a lot of work, both on the sustainability side as well as the technical side of the business. I then went into um, safety and sustainability, and then eventually into risk and assurance within Anglo-American at a global level, yep. uh, during which I was based both in London and in Southern yep. Africa. Um, so Sarah, obviously you're a geologist by a background, um, so I just wondered how a geologist would become a risk manager or even get into the, the risk as a, as a discipline, um, and obviously following on from your, and how you actually got into it. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Robin, one that I get asked on a fairly regular basis. Um, so, so geology is actually all about uncertainty. Um, no geologist truly knows what is going on underneath the surface of the earth um, until somebody actually goes and digs it out. 
Um, and, and so that's why when you are asking a geologist how much is under the ground, they will generally give you a range, <laughs> both in terms of volume and in terms of grade. Um, and that's exactly what a risk manager does, because a risk manager never knows what's going to happen with a risk, because risks are all things that may or may not happen in the future. Um, so actually, this is something where to be a risk manager, you have to be inherently comfortable with dealing with uncertainty. Um, that is exactly the same as if you're a geologist. Um, so to, to be totally open and honest, it's a very easy segue. Um, the only difference, of course, is that um, within the world of geology, typically you're focused on what's going on underneath the surface of the earth. Um, but of course, increasingly, especially within exploration, um, you're, you're having to think about all of the surface factors as well. So the social aspects, the environmental aspects, et cetera. Um, and so that was that's something there that as a risk manager, um, you, you piggyback off that and then just extrapolate um, to then work out what is the total risk profile for an organization or a business. Yeah. Would you would they have to do any do any courses, would you say, if, if a geologist wants to go into the um what's going to risk management do you can you advise any courses that they may want to do i mean did you do any particular courses around risk management yeah no so so the um there are a whole variety of different courses you can do um if you want to do enterprise-wide risk management which i think to be honest is, is a really good place to start um, people like the Institute of Risk Management, um, or indeed, I mean, Satala, we do risk courses like this on a, on a regular basis, specifically for mining. Um, and that gives you that um, understanding of what are all the different risks that you might face as an organization, be you big, be you small, be you working in Australia or in Africa, um, what are some of those risks you might face and, and how might you need to um, support an organization in actually being able to manage them. So there are lots of different courses that are out there. Um, beyond that, there are loads of courses if you just want to focus in on things like safety risk, for example, um, or um, if you're if you're an accountant, obviously there are there are lots of generic um, sort of financial risk courses, etc. As well, yeah. um, but the, the ones that are perhaps more difficult to find, but actually are a bit more useful, are the enterprise risk management courses. The reason why they're more difficult to find is because they're newer, uh, yeah. because it's something that organisations have only really been doing over the last five years um, to that level of professionalisation. Yeah. Okay. One question I like to ask, and I'm sure the graduates listening to uh, who listen to this podcast, and I uh, speak to quite quite a lot of them, how did you um, get into Anglo from obviously from graduating? What was the process, and at that particular time? Oh, whether it was a lucky break or not, what were you doing to try and get into some of these uh, into into a company, and how did you get into Anglo? Yeah, so I went to a careers fair. I went to the the uh, British Geological Survey careers fair in Nottingham um, when I was a student, and um, at that careers fair, Rio Tinto were actually promoting their student internship scheme. So I actually applied to Rio Tinto first, which is okay. something that maybe Anglo doesn't know. Um, but whilst I was getting one of my lecturers um, to kindly fill in a reference for me, he suggested that I should also apply to Anglo-American. Um, and um, just by chance, Anglo happened to get back to me first. And so they were the, the company that I ended up doing my internship with. Okay. So it's, it's a case of going to a careers fair and obviously putting you I suppose putting yourself out there and and obviously applying to these companies 
do you know how many people they these companies were taking on at that particular time? I mean, was it a small number compared to all the applicants? Well, so I mean, I I joke um, perhaps um, um, slightly uh, self-depreciatingly, as it were, um, to say that they they must have had twelve spaces and only ten people applied, which is why right. I got the job. But hopefully, it wasn't the case. No. Um, so this is a case where I actually used to help to run the Anglo-American student internship scheme um, a number of years ago. And at that time, we used to have hundreds of people applying from all over the world um, for only a handful of internship schemes. Um, and um, some hints or tips, I guess, with regards to that is never be scared to apply. Mm. The worst somebody can do is either say no or not respond to the email or the CV, et cetera, that you send in. Um, however, when you are sending in your CV um, or that covering letter, for example, make very sure that you have actually made sure that what you're sending is fit for purpose for that organization. Yeah. Um, the number of people who used to apply to Anglo-American and call us um, Anglo-America, for right. example. Yeah. Okay, so that's not the name of the company. Yeah. Um, also, as well, there were there were little things. So try to know who it is that you're actually sending the information to. So I always um, so I mean, I have a PhD, so I guess my title is Dr. Gordon. But people used to assume that I was a man okay. the whole time. And whilst if you're looking for someone for a job, actually, things like that shouldn't matter. They do, because when you're trying to stand out from a crowd of hundreds, if not thousands, actually making sure that everything is right yeah. um, really helps. Um, I think since then, I constantly get handed CVs and business cards for people looking for jobs, which is really flattering and, and fantastic. Um, and, and that's a case of I really don't mind being handed those in random places. Yeah. Um, I and do something with them always. But yeah, if you're looking for a job, every opportunity is a good opportunity. Don't be scared to apply. Yeah. And just just obviously, because the, the Minds of Money conference was only a few days ago, and, and obviously yeah. you, yourself was there and so was I, and I did speak to a few graduates. Can you give any tips as to attending, whether it's a careers event, whether it's a networking event, or like a conference like Minds of Money, what they, what graduates, and I know there was quite a few graduates there, I think they, they were there on the last day. Is there any tips that you could give them about, how they should approach people. I mean, is there any tips? I mean, obviously it's good handing out business cards all the time. Is there any suggestions that you could give them to maybe increase their chances of potential opportunities being presented to them? Yeah, so first of all, go to the events. Yeah. Um, if you if you phone up or you email the, the organizers and say that you're a student, offer to help out for free, they in return can give you a free ticket. So I know that for Minds and Money, depending on what sort of pass you're on, it can cost thousands of pounds to go to those sort of events. But actually being a student, you can get in for free. So use that ability yeah. uh, when you are a student. Um, secondly, get your business cards printed or have your CV in your hands. So have a way through which people can contact you. But also when, when everybody goes through their business cards at the end of the day, they look at it and they go, oh yeah, that was that fantastic student from whatever university, et cetera. Yes, I'll look out for their email or something like that. So yep. anything that you can do to, as a little hook into somebody's memory. Um, and then the third thing, I think one of the really easy questions to use if you're going up to somebody you don't know is to ask them for advice as to how you might be able to get some experience within the sector. Yeah. 
So everybody loves to give advice. Yeah. It's a really easy question to go into. So number one is, can you give me some advice as to how I might be able to get some experience in the sector? Question number two, how did you do it? Because yeah. then you get that person talking about themselves. And as you can hear now, everybody likes talking about themselves. So those are two fantastic questions. And then action number three is then hand them your business cards and you say, would it be okay if I sent you through my CV or whatever, just in case it's of use in the future? And that person will invariably say yes. Yes, that's certainly great advice. And I suppose I'll add a fourth point to that is always following up. So if you get the business card from whoever you're speaking to, follow Mm. up a day or two later, just saying it's great to meet you. Um, I'm so and so. Whether you whether you include your C, um, CV or not, just introduce yourself. We met. We spoke about this, so it jogs their memory and follow up, and then continue following up. You may want to ask them if it's okay for them for you to then follow up with them, but do it periodically, whether it's mm. every few months or every month, depending. Um, but it's important to then follow up and build that relationship with those people that you did you did meet and did interact with. Oh, definitely, because it, it's something where, um, and, and being completely honest about this, um, I, I, I get hundreds of emails every day, and some I manage to do to deal with, and others get filed in that, I'll come back to this later yeah. type thing. And um, depending on how busy things are, sometimes those, um, the, the emails with the CVs, et cetera, attached, do get filed in the, I'll come back to this later because it's important that I actually apply some thought. Yeah. Um, so therefore, following up with me personally is, is a really good way to yeah. remind me that that email is still sitting there. So my sincere apologies to yeah. all of those people that I haven't got back to yet. It's not because I'm ignoring you. It's just because, unfortunately, um, other things are going on. And I would just say one thing with the emails is um, I I do get quite a lot of emails where people just say, hi, my name is insert name. I'm looking for a job placement. Can you help? Yeah. That as a one liner email, to be honest, doesn't help me. It doesn't tell me what you're looking for. I don't even know who you are. Is it a phishing email? So, you know, that's something like that is not helping anybody. So put yourself in the shoes of the person who's going to be reading your email to see, okay, does this email help that person help me? Yeah. And if it doesn't, don't bother sending it because to be completely honest, you're wasting that person's time. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And again, I'll add another slightly another point to that. Um, don't necessarily just uh, rely on emails. Um, I think it's also important to pick up the phone. And if you pick up the phone and engage with that person, you're gonna. You're only gonna build more credibility around around you, uh, around the, the um, around the relationship that you potentially might be a might be forging. So, it you can email at certain times, but then also pick up the phone and speak to that person, especially if you're 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 starting to get that uh, interaction between each other. Um, I think it's good to pick up the phone and speak to them. So there's some good um, good advice uh, to all the graduates out there listening. And I thought I'd just bring that up because you mentioned that. Obviously, you got into Anglo and just wondered what process you went through. And I get questions all the time from graduates asking me what they should do and any advice around trying to get into the industry. So, yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate that. 
No, totally. And I mean, this is something where I'm a, an honorary visiting lecturer at Imperial College. Um, I'm also um, a research associate at the University of Johannesburg. Um, and as many of the students listening will know, I, I do do quite a lot of talks in different universities, etc., around the country. I'm also the, the chair for foreign and external affairs at the Geological Society. Um, and, and this is a case, the future of the industry is in the new people coming into the industry. Um, and if you have a degree or if you're studying for a degree in, say, geology, that's fantastic. But you don't necessarily have to be a geologist within the mining sector. There are a huge range of different jobs that you can go into. Um, and I mean, Rob, you know much more about this than I do, but in terms of you know, the, the future skills mix that a mining company needs, especially a, a large scale mining company, is very, very different in, you know, in the future compared yeah. to where we were 10 years ago. Um, and so I think that's something there where it's a really exciting sector. There are lots of new opportunities that are opening up. Um, and, and as I'm sure we'll go into a little bit later, it's actually mining that holds the key to really being able to achieve a lot of the sustainable development goals for the world. So yeah. actually, rather than being a nasty, evil, wicked sector, as sometimes we have the reputation for being, to be honest, actually, this is where a huge amount of the world's opportunities sit, which I yeah. think is really exciting. Yeah. And I just think it's it's education. So the people outside of mining are not educated in what mining is about. And I've mm. seen that over more, more, more recently. Especially, I went to the the IMARC conference in in Melbourne, where there was a lot of protesters. Um, yeah. And I just think if they were actually a little bit more educated, there probably wouldn't be as many dramas as there was. But that's another that's another topic anyway to speak about. So, yeah. Um, so yeah. So I just if you want to carry on from um, when you worked at Anglo and finishing yeah. off there, and then where you went to where you went to next. Yeah, so in, in 2014, um, together with a, with another two individuals from Anglo, so Tankiso and Laura, we founded Satala. Um, and Satala is a risk management consultancy. And our aim with regards to Satala was to make risk management truly practical and accessible at all levels of the organization. Um, we'd certainly been involved in lots of risk workshops and uh, risk analysis where it was really considered to be a tick box approach. It wasn't really necessarily connected to the strategy or the objectives of our teams or the organization as a whole. Um, yet we could see that in other sectors, especially risk management is that mechanism through which people can truly understand what the objectives are that they're trying to achieve, the potential opportunities and threats that might impact on them, um, motivate for additional budgets and resources to be able to manage those risks, which are those potential opportunities or threats, um, and then circle back and actually work out, are these the right objectives that we should be really be aiming for? Um, and so what we did in 2014 was we took that, um, that knowledge um, and that practical skill set, and we've applied it across a, a wide range of different industries and sectors. So everything from agriculture and healthcare through to mining, oil and gas, banking, insurance, charities, governments, mm -hmm. you name it, uh, we've been we've been really lucky in terms of working with those organizations um, and all over the world as well. So I've delivered risk training sessions and facilitated board meetings in everywhere from Beijing and Moscow to Oman and North America, Panama, all over Latin America, Africa, and um, spent a huge amount of time in Australia. 
Um, and it works. Mm. So making risk management really, really simple not only ensures that you can truly understand what might impact on your ability to achieve your objectives um, in line with your company values. So there's a lot about accountability and responsibility, um, but also ensuring that your organization remains dynamic so that where you do need to take action really quickly to try and make sure we can manage these risks, then the organization can pivot very quickly and can take that action. Yeah. And obviously, risks vary from country to country. And I suppose not one country has the same risks as another country because <laughs> there's different things going on in each of those countries. So I suppose it's a unique, it's, it's unique to each country and I suppose unique for each company, depending on what they do in that particular country as well. So it's two, two unique and it's, I suppose it's finding a solution for the country and the company. Oh, absolutely. So this is something where a lot of a lot of organizations get really stuck with risk management because they try and apply exactly the same recipe to every single one of yeah. their operations. And when that happens, you can see it from a mile off because suddenly their process for risk management starts to creep from four steps, which is all you need, um, up to nine, 12, 25 different steps that people have to go through just to try and understand what sort of risks they might face, yeah. et cetera. And that's because they're trying to cover off every eventuality. Um, and as you quite rightly say, Rob, you know, the, the world is varied. Um, risk management is all about dealing with uncertainty. So it's never going to be perfect. Yeah. Um, so the, the kind of the key or the secret source really with regards to risk management is being open to understanding what your context is be it internal or external to your operation, but also how it's changing and how it might change in the future. Yeah. Because the better you understand that, the, the better you can understand what your risks might be and how you then may want to prepare for them. Yeah. So what are some of the key risks that mining companies are currently looking at at the moment? And I suppose that's more of a general question because it, I suppose it depends on what country we're, we're focusing on. But is there a general risk is there general risk for mining companies that all of them will go through no matter what country they're looking at? Oh yeah. So I mean there are there are very generic risks that we that we all face. Um no matter if we're a mining company or perhaps we're looking to invest in a mining company or we're part of the, the service sector that supports mining as a whole. Um, and, and those tend to get reviewed and published every couple of years by some of the big consultancies, for example, which is great. Um, but the big one that everyone's talking about at the moment, of course, is um, tailings dams or how we actually deal with our waste. Uh, because what we've been doing as a sector for a very long time now is actually creating some really quite substantial man-made hazards. Um, and the problem with all of those tailings dams is um, they actually they all have the potential to fail. Um, either catastrophically um, in the way that we saw the likes of Brumadinho or San Marco or Mount Polly or I could carry on. Yeah. Um, but also tailings dams um, pose other risks to us as well, but be it through environmental damage, so where they leak. And yeah. most tailings dams, to be honest, um, no matter if you blind them or not, um, they do tend to have those sort of problems, um, which whilst they, they won't pose that immediate short-term catastrophic risk 
um, or that big bang risk, as it were. They're things that could have an incredibly large impact on the environment and our surrounding communities in the far distant future if we don't do something about it now. So so tailings dams would be something that um, every large scale mining company, I think, has at the top of its list at the moment. Of course, the reason why it's been put there is, is has been from the the activities or the disclosure requirements that have been put in place by the investment community. Um, and then, of course, um, the response to that from the likes of um, the ICMM and partners saying, OK, um, how are we going to deal with this going forward? How can we show that we're, we're a responsible sector and that you should be giving us your money um, to uh, to invest in digging lovely rock out the ground for the future? Um, so that's just one area of risk. And you can see how complicated um, yeah. that can be and how difficult it is. Um, but beyond that, um, some risks that are really um, coming to the top of the list at the moment are those that are around the environment, social and governance or ESG, um, which is just another way of saying sustainability or corporate social responsibility or whatever you want to package it up as. Um, and of course, those are all of the, the environmental type risks. So again, it could be pollution, it could be use of water, it could be dust in the air. Um, through to the communities aspects. So how do we interface with the communities round about our mine sites all the way through to governments um, as well? Um, and, and this is something that has really, one of the reasons why it's become more important is because the ability for people to communicate around the world and share where they're seeing events, incidents um, begin to appear. And so therefore enhancing certain risks for the future. So through social media, et cetera, people yeah. can, can share information very freely. Um, and something that I find really interesting in this area is that relationship between artisanal and small scale mining with large scale mining. Um, and I think what we're beginning to see here is um, the emergence of um, an increased need for us all to be able to work together um, because we're all miners. Yeah. Speak to a, an artisanal miner, they are just as much a miner as I am. Um, and, and actually taking that view, I think, is absolutely integral to working out how do we work as a, as a continuous um, chain of people who actually work within the mining sector. Um, so you have all of those very complicated ESG type risks, um, which then takes us on into things like uh, infrastructure, so the availability of power. So there's there's huge problems, um, especially, for example, in Africa at the moment with regards to the availability of electricity. Um, as we know, there are rolling blackouts on a fairly regular basis, um, especially in southern Africa, for example, in Zambia at the moment. Um, and then um, within this as well, of course, and this is more on the, on the kind of um, again, on the threat side, you've got all the normal challenges pertaining to the geology. And so, of course, the rocks that we're looking for being deeper in the ground because we've dug all the easy stuff out and also more complex as well. So the metallurgists and the engineers having to be a bit more imaginative in terms of how do we actually recover what we want out of those rocks. I think the final thing to say here is actually because risk isn't just about threat, it's also about opportunity. Um, and I think going into the future, there are some huge opportunities for us on the table. So there's still uncertainties, so therefore there's still risks. Um, and that is around mining's ability to be central to a very positive discussion around how the world actually deals with um, things like um, so sustainable development goal number one, so no poverty. Um, well, the way that the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, addresses that actually is through utilizing its natural resources in the ground. 
Um, so it's through mm. mining. So how does the mining sector see itself positioned within um, that combating of poverty within the DRC? Um, so I think that's really exciting. Um, all the way through to um, SDG number three, so that's good health and well-being. Um, so fantastic advancements being made with regards to safety in the sector. Um, we're still not good enough. I think in 2018 of the top 26 mining companies in the world, there were still 50 fatalities. Um, mm. And yeah, it's to be honest, it's despicable. Mm. <laughs> um, we should we should be better than this. Um, but of course, with regards to health and safety, it's it's not just the losses of life; it's also people being hurt. Um, and um, there are some, you know, very emotive discussions that get had within companies to say, okay, um, what's the difference between somebody being permanently disabled or somebody losing their life? Now, we don't want either. Um, yet at the moment, you've got a huge focus on fatalities, um, and which I think is great. But we need to make sure we don't take our eye off people getting hurt as well yeah. uh, within that. Um, and then, of course, the, the final opportunity on the table here, and I think this is the opportunity for, for mining really to change the narrative around who we are. And that is something like SDG number seven, so affordable and clean energy. Um, we all know from within the sector that all of the different forms of renewable energy are solely dependent on the mining sector's ability to dig certain commodities like cobalt, lithium, rare earth, rare earth elements, apologies, out of the ground. Um, and so unless we can do that in a responsible manner, then we're not going to be able to either uh, ensure there is enough energy available for people on earth or to be able to do it in a way that doesn't, let's face it, waste all of our fantastic um, natural resources such as coal and oil and gas, which can be used for other things. Yeah. Obviously, we've just spoken about the, the main key issues that most com mining companies will look at. What what key, key risks would you say that mining companies do overlook that, and, it, and I suppose you might look at it as quite, quite common, that mining mm -hmm. companies will look at certain, oversee certain risks and from obviously dealing within the risk risk area, what, 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 what would you say one of the few key main risks that most mining companies overlook? So I, it's I think it's probably, it's probably something for them to focus on. Yeah, no, totally. I think, well, it, this is something here where um, if you can compare how mining companies do risk management compared to other sectors, um, what's happened over the last five, seven years is most other sectors have moved from having strategic risk and operational risk being separate to bringing all of it together into enterprise-wide risk management. And enterprise-wide risk management is basically all forms of risk across the entirety of the organization and all the way down to the front line as well. So it's not just at the top end. Now I know that enterprise risk management gets interpreted in different ways in different parts of the world, um, but the most common definition is everything piled into the same pot so that we can actually analyze it all together. Um, and the reason I bring this up is that I think that most mining organizations, the risks that they miss are actually ones that they already know about, but the information isn't being shared internally. Yeah. And so there's, so the number of well safety incidents where somebody gets hurt and then you go and you do the investigation and someone invariably says, oh, I could have told you about that. Got and you. you just think, oh, 
well, if we already knew, why didn't we do something? So it's a communication issue then, more so. So any risks that become, so risk, you identify a risk, it becomes more of a risk, and you think it's probably along the lines of the communication between people within the organisation that that creates that risk. Oh yeah, I mean, I think I think invariably people actually know what the risks are already. Yeah. It's very unusual to to suggest a risk that nobody's thought about within yeah. a company. Um, and to be honest, in in the the hundreds of, of risk workshops that I facilitated over the last few years, um, um, I think I'd be fairly arrogant to say if I proposed all of the new risks. Actually, most of the stuff is uh, they're things that people already know about in oh, the yeah. room. Um, but these these unacknowledged risks. Um, which can sometimes be called elephants because it's like the elephant yeah, in the room. room. Yeah. Um, they exist for, for three main reasons. Um, and it's either because uh, people assume that somebody else already knows about it and is dealing with it. So there's the assumption or it's a it's a cultural or a sensitivity thing. So people don't feel able to talk about it or to escalate it and because it feels very uncomfortable for what's going on. And of course, the culture of every company is different and yeah. also every country is different. But then the third reason is actually the risk management process that we use within mining. Um, and, and the way that it becomes a blocker is firstly, because it can be incredibly complicated. Um, and mining has made risk management way more complicated than most other sectors has done. So we can make this much simpler for ourselves. Um, but then the second thing is um, within mining, we're very tied to uh, risk criteria. So severity criteria. Um, and unless a risk doesn't trigger X million dollars, or X number of people losing their lives, um, then it's very easy for people not to escalate it yeah. or to talk about it because they don't think it's important enough. Um, and that actually is is um, is a real shame because you need to be able to talk about those risks first and then work out, okay, do we need to do something about it or not? Um, because what you end up finding is just because one person has a little baby elephant that they don't think anybody else needs to know about, if every single operation or team within that organization has the same it's going to be a bigger problem it turns into a herd <laughs> of elephants if you get yeah. the analogy so yeah. this is about sharing information across the organization and now we have the systems we have the tools to be able to do this mm. um there's no excuse anymore and so that's really what we're trying to do with risk management and that's where a quick win is within mining so make it simple remove the barriers for people to actually escalate things and within that simplify your risk management process as a whole. Yeah. Um, what risks, uh, oh, sorry, do risks vary depending on where the mine's located in the world? And uh, can you give any examples? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, um, you know, risks will vary depending on what um, sort of geographical jurisdiction you're in. Yeah. So, for example, if, if you're a mine in Australia, um, then it will have different rules and regulations compared to, to, say, the Democratic Republic of Congo. So those are two, um, two locations I've been in in the last couple of months, for example. So, so the laws and regulations are different. Um, now, of course, depending on what sort of company you, you are, you are probably trying to adhere to internal standards that are better than what those regulations are imposing on you. But those risks concerned with compliance are gonna be different. Um, the risks, however, concerning environmental are gonna be exactly the same yeah. because 
you're going to be having the same sort of impact on the environment round about you. Now, of course, some mines are located in much more sensitive regions than than elsewhere. Um, but that usually just means that you need to be monitoring what's going on a little bit more carefully. Um, with regards to the, the social aspect, um, so this is something where, again, so if you take the Congo and artisanal mining, um, this is something where um, it's, it's an incredibly complex um, uh, complex set of issues and risks that we're facing at the moment um, there. Um, and so that's something which is um, requires a great deal of thought. And also you're, you're not going to solve artisanal mining as a problem. And I say that um, kind of in inverted commas, because actually it's a huge opportunity as well. Yeah. Um, you need to work out a whole myriad of different controls that you can try um, to actually work out how do we how do we turn artisanal mining into an opportunity rather than a threat, um, especially somewhere like the Congo. Um, but you've got similar types of risks along those lines in Australia with native title owners, um, for example. It's just um, it's they're the same risks, um, but in a different context. Yeah. Um, and so therefore they demand slightly different controls as a whole. Um, so I guess that is a long-winded way of saying, actually, we pretty much face the same risks. Yeah. They're just different contexts and so need different ways of managing them. Yeah. So what, what's the main risk differences between a developed country like Australia compared mm -hmm. to an undeveloped country like the DRC in Africa or, or any other country in Africa? What, what are the main differences in terms of risk? So I think, um, so, well, well, I mean, one of the main differences, as I mentioned, so it comes yeah. down to the, the kind of the political and the economic front um, would be number one. Um, I think uh, availability of energy is something that is more uncertain in Africa uh, because you've got less control or perhaps less awareness of what's really going on in terms of the provision of that power. Whereas in Australia, um, if you're not generating it yourself, um, then you're probably going to be more aware of what's going on with the provision that's coming um, from the provider. Um, so, so perhaps there's a bit more reliability in terms of your service providers in somewhere like Australia yeah. um, compared to um, various jurisdictions in Africa. Um, also with that, the provision of your raw materials. Um, so being able to get, um, for example, at the moment, sulfuric acids um, into the Congo um, is a problem. Okay. Um, whereas that might not be such a problem in Australia, or at least you would have had longer line of sight of what's going on, and perhaps you would be able to control it a little bit better. Yeah. Um, same with things like critical spares and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And and I guess um, one of the reasons why you get these differences is um, if you are one of the main sources of income to a particular region. If you're operating in somewhere like Australia or Canada or America or, or Europe, for example, um, the the difference or the kind of the line between what the government looks after and then what you're as a mining company are perhaps expected by the local community to deliver. Um, actually, in in somewhere like Australia, the government will be doing the vast majority of that. Yeah. And um, because, you know, tax is obviously disseminated through appropriate systems, et cetera, within the country. Um, whereas if you are um, in somewhere that perhaps has a less mature government, perhaps it hasn't been in, in power. or perhaps They're expecting you to do everything. Exactly. And so what it means is it just means that you're kind of at a slightly different point on that continuum. Mm. 
of who does what between a company and the government. Um, and actually, if you're a company that is working in a country that is still settling in terms of democracy or, or whatever the case might be, um, that form of governance, um, actually, you need to be um, have eyes wide open to say, okay, how do we as a company not only make sure that the community is okay, but actually we're supporting the government in their evolution um, mm. through time as they're trying to develop their country. Mm. Um, and so what you'll see there is lots of, of companies having almost um, a three-pronged plan. So they'll have the short-term, the medium-term, and the long-term plan for dealing with those sort of risks. Yeah. And the controls will change depending on what time horizon you're looking at, because yeah. of course, um, somewhere like the Democratic Republic of Congo is probably going to change much faster with regards to those social risks than, say, somewhere like Australia, which is just a bit more um, settled, perhaps. Yeah. So do you see a lot of companies in that situation where they're not handholding the government as much? and expect the government to do things that they probably don't know how to do. Do you see that quite often? Especially, yeah, if, I, especially if, if they've gone into a country, especially if they're probably new to a, new to a country or new to working in a completely different environment. Uh, say, for instance, if it was an Australian company or a UK company going, in for the, going into Africa for the first time, mm. they, may not, they may oversee that because they probably expect the government to do the majority of whatever the work but not actually realizing that they've actually got to help them along as well yeah so i think that's a case where you know again they they typically okay they may well identify the risks sometimes they they don't necessarily have them um in their profile initially when they first think about it uh, but that's of course where well, we might come along and say look usually you would you would have these sort of risks if you don't think that they're very important right now that's fine but maybe just keep them on the list for the moment because they will probably increase in importance as you go further down the track with regards to the project um so people do um undervalue perhaps some of those risks yeah. because they've just got less awareness of them. There's less that they know about them. Um, it's also a case the assumptions that are made um, can be be fairly extreme. Um, and it's, it's a really difficult line to tread um, because as, as a mining company, gone are the days where you go into a community and you build them a school and you slap your name above the door. Okay. Yeah. You know, we, we don't do that now generally um, although of course many mining companies still do do that um, I think the reason why other mining companies have perhaps um, moved on from it is they've had um, quite a lot of problems with that especially with maintenance etc and when you sell the mine or when you close the mine what then happens to the school you know have you set up the trust yeah. to be able to finance it mm. so it's not just building a building you need to work out that full business plan of how is it going to survive once you've gone and what is is that going to be part of your legacy and is it going to be good or is it going to be bad yeah. um what does that look like um and so you've got this um it's very difficult to tread that line between what should the company do and what should the government do um Ideally, again, where the controls tend to work is where you get either intermediaries um, or um, people that, that can ensure that that legacy truly is is a good one. And and ideally, that should be through the government. Yeah. And it's it's working with NGOs. It's working with governments of other nations. So it might be so here in the UK, the Department of Industry and Trade, for example. Um, they're all in this to help other countries develop 
Um, and so they're experts in this. And so that's a case of if you are going into a new jurisdiction, actually doing your homework around who are all of those different partners that might be able to help you do this. They're not in it for the mining. They're in it for development. You know, they'll yeah. be in it for something different. And so when you do that, you need to understand what are their motivators. And so therefore, where does that uh, tipping point happen between you and them? Yeah. Um, which then comes around to say, OK, what's that long term plan of making sure that the government develops things? So at the end of the day, it's the government that's looking after the school or whatever the case might be. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what challenges do companies face around risk when looking at higher risk jurisdictions? So, I mean, I think this is this is comes down to your your appetite and your tolerance for taking risk. Yeah. Um, and, and what we mean by that is um, is that balancing acts. Um, so, okay, if you want to mine cobalt, the best place in the world to go is the Democratic Republic yeah, of yeah. yeah. But <laughs> it might have beautiful rocks in the ground. Um, the operating environment from a surface perspective can be incredibly difficult. Yeah. Um, and so this comes down to that balancing act between, okay, so there's something lovely and juicy in the ground. Do you want to go and, and dig it out? Um, another country, for example, um, is Iran. So Iran has huge wealth in the ground from a natural resources perspective. But as we know, at this precise moment in time, um, there is, it's very uncertain jurisdiction. And so if you were trying to raise money as a mining company to go and do something in Iran, that would be quite difficult right now. Would be. Yeah. <laughs> From a political perspective, the same yeah. thing can be said for Afghanistan. Afghanistan's mm. got huge wealth in the ground, um, but for very obvious reasons, um, it's been very difficult to get to. And so that's something where even if you're an exploration company and you think that you can get in there and do that initial mapping, um, do that initial um, sniff to see if there actually is a resource in the ground, the conversion of that resource to a reserve is going to be really tough. Um, especially if the political climate, the social climate, um, isn't necessarily in a position that other people think that those risks are acceptable. Yeah. So um, obviously we've talked a lot about risks that mines and those invested in them face, um, but yet risk management is often a tick box exercise, as you mentioned previously, um, yeah. that that we do in a pre-shift, in pre-shift exercise or once every six months for our boards or auditors. Um, how do you actually get a mining company to truly manage those risks and not just make it a tick box? So I think I think this comes back to, um, well, firstly, using an enterprise wide approach to your risk management. Um, so don't split your risks between business risks and operational risks. You need to pile them all into the same pot. Um, and the reason why you need to do that is because all of your risks are linked to one another. Um, and the way that um, most other sectors are, are looking at risk management now um, <clears throat> is through a relationship perspective. So if one risk happens, what does that then trigger? And what does that then trigger? Because my risk might be somebody else's cause, might be somebody else's consequence, yeah. for example. So we need to look at all of this in conjunction. And the other thing, and perhaps more importantly, is um, if you have an operational risk, invariably the control that you need is going to sit on the business side and so you need to be able to link all of these together if you're actually going to manage your risks rather than just doing risk assessments because risk management is not about assessing. Risk assessments yeah 
It's about managing your risks. It's about doing something about them. Um, and again, I've worked with so many companies where they very proudly show me their baseline risk registers that has thousands of lines. And then there are the most beautiful risk bow ties that you've ever seen linked to some of those important risks. And I say, great, so let's go and have a look at the controls and their, their faces fall because they haven't actually gone and, and done anything with those spreadsheets or, yeah. or with software that they've got. And to be honest, there is no point yeah, yeah. doing that. Yeah. It's total waste of time and money unless you go and make a decision based on that information that you've pulled together. Yeah. Um, and the key thing with this is that you can. we make risk-based decisions the entire time. Every time we cross a road, mm. we're assessing those risks. And, and guess what? We are all perfectly capable of crossing the road without filling in a spreadsheet. Yeah. And so that's a case there where even if we're talking about at the top end of organizations where there might be multi-billion dollar deals being done or at the front line where you're doing your, your stop, look, assess, manage or, or whatever the case might be, which are just risk assessments, um, is rather than overcomplicate them with paperwork, is just to get on, understand what those risks might be and do something about them and have the conversations around the controls and our ability to manage the risks rather than what are the risks, Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. You're pushing it into the management space rather than the assessment space. Yeah, I suppose it's a bit around like health and safety again, where they would have tick boxes. Yeah. But again, they should be being proactive on some of those health and safety risks that they may identify something could happen. Instead of waiting for something to happen, that's yeah. prevent, trying to even prevent it from actually happening at all if oh, you yeah. see if you see something so again i think health and safety always used to be a tick box tick 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 box scenario um whether they've come on a little bit more because obviously health and safety is at the forefront of of mining um but i take it risk is just behind that um and you're you're trying to do something more proactive and instead of like you said just tick box ticking boxes Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, so so safety risk management is part of enterprise risk management. Yeah. Uh, it's just that you've used perhaps more specific controls in the safety space and people will be talking about hazards to a much greater degree. So a safety specialist will talk about hazards the whole time. Somebody who's in marketing doesn't need to know what a hazard is. No. So so they don't you don't need to talk about that. Um, and so in enterprise risk management, you boil it down to the simplest component parts um, which then enables people to be able to communicate and you can con then compare and contrast a safety type of risk with a financial risk, for example, and then say, okay, well, what, what's actually more important for us to be able to deal with at the moment? And um, the other thing just on the tick box side is um, within mining, um, a lot of the larger companies, it's not necessarily the case for the smaller companies um, which is actually a good thing a lot of the larger companies have become um, really entrenched in the world of the verification of critical controls um, now the problem with this is um, very few people understand what a, crit a critical control actually is and the difference between it and a normal control um, and then in terms of the verification often what we see is people are not verifying the actual effectiveness of a control. They're just verifying a component part of a control. And what I mean by there is, say for example, you have a furnace and regulation perhaps might even say that the main control you need um, is a thermometer or a, or a thermocouple. Okay, well, great. Yes, you need to be managing the temperature of that furnace. 
But just by going and checking that the thermometer is still there and hasn't been stolen, that doesn't tell you anything about whether the temperature of that furnace is actually being managed. You need to be going, follow that control flow, as it were, process flow down to, okay, is the temperature of that furnace being turned up or down? Or does somebody actually have the ability to turn the furnace off if needed, for example? That is the bit of the control that needs to be verified, not if you've got a data collection mechanism like a thermometer and not if you have a policy or a procedure which tells someone what they need to do. You need to be verifying, does the person actually do it or does the machinery actually do it when it needs to be done? Um, And this is something here where if the mining companies of the world want to not only save themselves a huge amount of time and money and effort, um, but also make sure that they really are managing their risks rather than just thinking that they're managing the risks. It is to take a big step back and say, okay, of those lists of controls that we have, be they critical controls or just normal controls, are they actually controls? Mm. And I would, I'm Scottish, so therefore I don't, I'm not very good at betting, et cetera, because I'm too stingy to do it. <laughs> um, but I would, um, I would wager um, a significant, uh, something that's very valuable to me to say that um, I think that the lists of controls that organizations will end up verifying are in place are going to be shorter than those lists of critical controls that they currently have on their lists at the moment if they take the time to step back and look at what is a true control that actively manages a risk rather than just a thermometer or a piezometer or an inspection or a procedure or training or alarms because those things by themselves do absolutely nothing to manage a risk. They will help you do it, but you then need to action it either as a human being or you need to make sure a machine is doing it. Yeah. Um, I've got two two more questions. Um, so, can you offer the audience some tips as to how um, they can make risk management more practical and therefore useful? Yep. Okay. So, tip number one: simplify your process. Um, every risk management uh, procedure, etc., that I've gone through over the last five years from some of the world's best mining companies and some of the world's newest mining companies um, overcomplicates risk management when you compare it to other sectors. Um, so you can simplify that risk management process down into four very simple steps, which is just number one, understand what the context is and how it's changing together with your objectives. Number two, identify those risks, be they potential opportunities or threats, and work out if you need to do anything about them. Step number three is put in place the controls to manage those risks. And then step number four is the monitoring, the review, the reporting um, of everything that's going on, which then cycles back up into step number one, okay, which was, of course, your context and objectives, because by the time you've got back there, even if it's only a few seconds that it's taking you to go round in that circle, your knowledge coupled with the fact that the world is constantly changing means that context will have changed. And so therefore you need to have that very iterative, simple approach. And that's how lots of other sectors do risk management Mm. rather than this really, really complicated set of steps that we have generally within mining. Um, Tip number two um, is to focus on real controls. So those are the things that are gonna actively make a difference to your risk okay so they're going to change the potential impact of that risk 
um, if it occurs, but it's also going to change the potential um, likelihood of the risk occurring in the first place. And so controls generally impact on one or both of those different factors generally. Um, and unless the thing that you're looking at actively does that, it's probably not a control. And so you then need to work out, okay, how do I rephrase this so that it really is a control? So then if somebody comes along and verifies if it's there or not, they're not just going to tick a box and say, oh, yeah, nobody's stolen the thermometer today. It's still there. Okay. Yeah. Actually, they could be verifying, is somebody going to turn that furnace off if no. they need to? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the third, the third point is integrate all of your risks together. Um, no matter how simple or complex they are, some risks can be quantified, some risks cannot be quantified, or certainly not very easily. But you need to be able to chuck them all into the same pot um, and therefore be able to, to balance, okay, which ones do we think need most action now? And which ones, to be honest, we can leave to one side and just keep half an eye on it um, to see how they, they develop as a whole. Um, so I guess in summary, number one, simplify the risk management process. Number two, focus in on those real controls that are actually going to make a difference to your risk. And then number three, integrate all of your risks together so you can compare and contrast all of them. Yeah. So that's some uh, top tips uh, around risk management, which hopefully everyone's taking note noted of. Um, and last question, what's the outlook for Satala? Um, so, well, we've got currently got 60 associates based around the world. Um, so everywhere from um, here in London and in Europe as a whole um, through to Australia, Southern Africa, um, Latin America and North America. Um, so our outlook is to, to carry on really supporting organizations in enhancing their risk management process. Uh, also embedding it within their organization. So lots and lots of training sessions, et cetera. Um, but then also we do lots of research on the risk management side. So you'll find us um, generally um, in on the action in terms of developments with regards to how do we manage risks as a whole, both within mining, but then also across all sorts of other sectors as well. So we can make sure we stay ahead of the game or certainly on par with best pra practice with regards to risk management. Yeah. Well, really appreciate your time, Sarah, for taking the time to uh, to do this podcast. If our audience wants to get in contact with you, how can they uh, go about doing that? So either go to our website at www.satala.com, that is S-A-T-A-R-L-A.com, um, or just email me direct at Sarah, with an H, at Satala, S-A-T-A-R-L-A.com. Um, and I will try to get back to you no matter if you attach your cv or not <laughs> um and are you on any social media platforms uh yep so uh, feel free to to find me on linkedin um and then also you'll be able to find um satala on twitter etc as well yeah no worries alternatively you can contact myself and i can pass a message on to sarah and my email address is rob at mining-international.org well, thanks. Thanks again. Um, hope you enjoyed this podcast. I certainly learned a lot from uh, from listening to Sarah. Um, so I hope you enjoyed it and got some valuable content from this ep episode. Um, so until next time, happy mining. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> thanks for listening to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. If there are any topics you want discussed or questions you want to ask any guests, then you can email us at rob at mining-international.org. Or you can follow Rob and Mining International on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube for more content and to have your questions answered. Until next time, 
happy mining.